On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. One of the most uncomfortable feelings is the feeling of shame or inadequacy. I may not seem like a very mischievous person now, but when I was in middle school, I got into a good amount of trouble, and not good trouble. You see, I grew up in Colorado, and wildfires are a huge problem in that state. If you've ever been to Colorado, you know how dry it is. The air feels like a high desert. And because of that, there are a bunch of laws around using fireworks. But if you're a middle school boy, like I was at the time, there is almost nothing more fun than playing with fire and fireworks. And although Colorado had strict firework laws, at that time, if you drove less than 100 miles north from where I grew up, you would cross over the state line into Wyoming. And Wyoming didn't have the same laws. In Wyoming, you could buy fireworks that were not sold in Colorado. And when I was in middle school, around the 4th of July, many people in northern Colorado would drive to Wyoming to buy fireworks. Around this time, I had a neighbor who had an older brother who would go and get the good stuff. And my neighbor and I loved bottle rockets, which were illegal in Colorado. And one day we were down near a secluded part of a river and we were setting off these fireworks. We were having a good time when all of a sudden I heard a voice behind me ask, Hey, can I set off some of these with you? I turned around to see who had shown up and to my shock and horror, it was a police officer. We were busted. Luckily, the police officer didn't call our parents, or give us a ticket. He calmly gave us a warning and took our fireworks. I'm sure he could tell by the look on my face that the experience of being caught doing something illegal 
was punishment enough. It was a shameful moment for me, something I couldn't shake, and after that moment, fireworks weren't as fun. I was caught red-handed doing something I knew I shouldn't be doing. And if something like this has ever happened to you, you know it's not a pleasant feeling. Shame is one of those things that goes a bit deeper than just knowing we've done something wrong or that our actions were mistaken. Shame sort of hits at the core of our being. It suggests that there's something deeply flawed with me or with you, and not necessarily that we've just done something wrong. I want to propose that the wedding story at Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2 was a moment of potential shame and embarrassment for the couple and family hosting the wedding feast. Jesus is interested in healing our trauma and shame. We see in verse 1 and 2 that Mary, the disciples, and Jesus were invited to a wedding. And weddings in those days and in that area were about seven days long, and they ended with a feast. This feast is what's going on in the text that I read at the beginning of this episode, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But something terrible happens at that feast. The wine runs out. And just from Mary's concern, you can tell this could have been horrible. So she tells Jesus what is going on. In verse 3, she says, they have no wine. Mary seems to be hinting to Jesus something like, come on, you are the Messiah. If anyone can do something about this, it's you. But Jesus hasn't fully considered this or thought about this, it seems. Before this moment, Jesus thought that perhaps his main objective was the crucifixion, which is why he speaks of his hour having not yet come in verse 4. But Mary, in her motherly wisdom and love, knows that Jesus can make a big difference in everyday life for people. So she specifically brought the problem at hand to him. It would be a shame and an embarrassment for the family if they, have mit- if they had miscalculated how much wine they needed, or it would be shameful if it sort of revealed that they weren't able to afford enough for everyone. Maybe the party was going to have to end early, and the family would be remembered as that family whose wedding feast only lasted half the time of a normal wedding feast because they didn't have enough to keep their guests happy. It would be a horrible memory of a day that was supposed to be perfect. But as far as we can tell, the groom, the family, and the head server don't know about this threat. This story is a peek at sort of a behind-the-scenes moment. And where Jesus and Mary are, there are six very large stone water jars. So Jesus takes up the challenge by Mary and asks the servants to fill the water to the brim. In verse 8, Jesus has the waiters of the party take the new wine to the head server, the master of the banquet. 
and the wine is so good that he needs to say something to the groom. In verse 10, he says, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This comment from the head waiter is significant because he has a personal history of working at these feasts. He knows how they are typically celebrated, and he can sense that something different is happening here. Something wonderful is going on. In verse 10, the master of the banquet points out and says that the normal practice is to serve the best wine first and then the cheaper wine later when guests won't mind the difference as much. That would be the way to impress the guests and make the party an enjoyable experience. If you think about it from your perspective, when you host someone or plan a dinner, you want to wow the guests. You go all out and get the most expensive or tastiest things because it's a special occasion. You don't want to serve the usual stuff because it's just not a usual event. So the head waiter at the wedding feast commenting on the quality of the wine that is typically served after the meal when people are about to head home or when people are slowly leaving. This is what he's saying. He's saying at the end when sort of it's all over, that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. And the family probably knew about all of this and tried to plan accordingly. They would serve something to those who had stayed a little later but it wouldn't be as good as the wine they served at dinner. But this family ended up serving all they had. They didn't have enough. But Jesus, behind the scenes, makes a delicious wine from water and a larger quantity than most wedding parties could consume. Jesus turns this potential mishap into a feast that would be remembered because the most delicious wine was abundant and the celebration could keep going well past the time it was planned. As the master of the banquet noted, this house planned their wedding feast in a different way to keep guests longer and happier. In the act of serving the good wine after the meal, the hosts are telling the guests, stay a while, there's no need to go home, let's keep celebrating. You see, this house and this wedding feast on its own didn't have any particular notoriety. We don't even know the names of the family or the ones getting married. It was likely a common wedding feast like many others before in Cana and Galilee. But the difference was that Jesus was at the wedding feast. And when the glory and power of God are revealed in Jesus, everything gets better. Even the quality and amount of the little details, like what's to drink. This is Jesus. Everything gets better with Jesus. But what's even more amazing about this story is who gets the credit for this wonderful thing. It isn't Jesus. It's the groom. It's the family. It's the couple. The banquet master is amazed and tells the groom, you have saved the best till now. And you can imagine how happy the guests were after tasting such a treat 
and knowing there was more than enough to go around. They were all caught up in the grace, glory, and power of Jesus, and they didn't even know it. And that's what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. Jesus does all of these amazing things, not for himself, but for us. Jesus did his first miracle on that day to bring ordinary, everyday people into the glorious, mysterious story of God's grace and abundance. You see, by our power and ability, life doesn't always work out very well. We can't always live the life we want to. We can't always do the right thing even when we know what it is. And we can't always plan adequately when throwing a big party. But in Jesus, our shame, our embarrassment is covered with glory and abundance. We may not be very beautiful or have it all figured out right now, but Jesus makes us beautiful. Jesus gives us the credit for the abilities that were always his. Jesus gives us the good things we can't achieve on our own. We need Jesus to cover our shame and all the inadequacies of our lives. We need Jesus to make more wine because I don't know about you, but I often feel as if I'm trying my best, but the supplies keep running out. But in Jesus, we get glorious abundance. We get grace. And there's plenty to go around. Amen.